Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Deftari. Doomed to repeat it, millennials and Zoomers, that's Gen Z, aren't learning Holocaust history. We'll also talk about the uptick in hate crimes against the Jewish community. Here to discuss this and break it all down for us is Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which is also home to the Museum of Tolerance. He is a longtime activist for Jewish and human rights causes on five continents. In 1977, he came to Los Angeles from New York to help Rabbi Heyer found the Simon Wiesenthal Center. He's met with world leaders, including Pope Francis, presidents, foreign ministers, all to defend the rights of the Jewish people, combat terrorism, and of course, to promote multi-faith relations worldwide. He's a recognized expert on online hate and terrorism, founder of the Global Forum on Anti-Semitism. And in 20, uh, sorry, 2022, uh, Rabbi Cooper was appointed vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which tracks violations of religious freedom around the world. And Newsweek named him one of 50 most influential rabbis in the United States. I'd have to very much agree with that. He is my go-to rabbi for many things and uh, someone I've had on my Fox News shows very frequently. There are not too many members of the clergy who have also their uh, finger on the pulse of what's going on around the world. And Rabbi Cooper, you are undoubtedly one of the ones who I go to and is uh, recognized around the world. So thank you for being here. And um, my pleasure and honor, Lisa. Speaking of having a finger on the pulse and knowing what's going on around the world, you come to us tonight from Jerusalem, where they have just uh, finished celebrating their Independence Day, Day there today. So I thank you for being with us, and uh, I look forward to our conversation. So do I. Let's start. Rabbi, I, I brought you here today, I mean, for many reasons, obviously, what's going on. Uh, I think uh, a lot of us have been following um, the uptick in, in uh, crimes against uh, Jews around the world, particularly in the United States. But first, a shocking new uh, survey found that there's a lack of, of knowledge, Holocaust knowledge, among millennials and Gen Z. So there's a survey. Uh, it was actually conducted at the end of 2020, but just recently uh, surfaced, which found a, quote, worrying lack of basic Holocaust knowledge among adults under 40, including over one in 10 respondents could not recall having ever heard the word Holocaust, according to the survey, which was conducted by the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany. Uh, respondents of millennial and Gen Z ages in all 50 states of the United States had no idea about the basic facts regarding the Holocaust, with 63 percent of those who were surveyed not knowing that six million Jews died in the Holocaust and over half of those thinking that the death toll was fewer than two million. So, Rabbi, are you surprised by this poll and what do you attribute this to? Well, uh, there are a lot of contributing factors, uh, not least of which we're now uh, about eight decades after the end of the Holocaust. And I think not just when we talk about the Shoah, about the lessons we need to learn from that era, uh, but in general, I think a lot of parents make a mistake that they can transmit their values and their concerns to the younger generation just by osmosis. You really have to take an activist position. And of course, their partners, the parents' partners, should be uh, the schools and the teachers that um, you know, are supposed to be exposing young people to important ideas. And, and I think, you know, in terms of our museum, the Museum of Tolerance, which has hosted 
seven and a half, uh, you know, a million visitors in the last three years, 30 years. Uh, the, the importance here maybe is much more important on what are the basic values and lessons we want our kids and grandchildren to learn as opposed to the various statistics. And we try, I think, to focus uh, in the museum experience on the personal. Obviously, survivors are extremely important. But I'll give you one example. Uh, we're now 81 years since the infamous Vance Conference. That was in January 1942, when 15 ministers of German state got together over drinks and in 90 minutes decided to mass murder 11 million Jews in Europe. They had a formal meeting and they had a vote. The man who led this effort was a man by the name of Heydrich, who later on would be assassinated. Uh, and his assistant was the infamous Adolf Eichmann. Before that meeting, Heydrich said that he was worried because half of the people, uh, seven or eight of those individuals, those ministers of state, had PhDs, had advanced education, and he wasn't sure they would be able to vote for the annihilation of an entire people. And he shared those concerns with Eichmann. The final tally was 15-0. So here's a lesson that everyone can relate to. Never confuse higher education or even intellect with ethics or morals. So I think if we're, uh, you know, focus on, of course, the basics of what happened during the Shoah, especially for the Jewish people, many young Jews don't even know who Simon Wiesenthal was. So we're, we're looking, younger people are looking through the rear view, rear view mirror. And those events just seem so distant and frankly irrelevant to them, especially in a world dominated by social media. So it's up to us to come up with the strategies uh, and tactics and to train teachers to be able to reach out properly to kids and also to encourage parents to be directly involved. You know, I think there's 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 some there's so much to unpack here, but mainly looking at this, and I and I absolutely agree with you in the sense that, of course, so much of this comes from a lack of education, so much comes from you know, um, and you know, a lack of awareness, etc. But you know, you have Holocaust deniers, and do you think the, is that the obstacle that's standing in the way? Are people impenetrable when it comes to the Holocaust? So, for example. You know, and we can talk about Israel in, in, in a bit, but, you know, you don't see people denying the war of 1812. You don't see people, den you know, denying the Revolutionary War or, you know, the Armenian genocide. You're, you see people denying the Holocaust. And now, as you said, this is 80, 80, 80 plus years uh, behind us. We have um, survivors right now, victims of the Holocaust who are in their 90s and above 100, um, who will not be here in a few years. So we won't, we won't even have these firsthand accounts. I mean, what's going to happen then? What are the obstacles that are standing in the way of people like yourself and the Simon Wiesenthal Center doing more or actually, you know, succeeding in your quest to educate people on this? That's a lot to unpack even in your question, but I think a few things. First, Holocaust denial and deniers. Uh, there are two types of Holocaust deniers. There are those people who say, I don't believe that Auschwitz took place because I'm more comfortable believing it never happened. I don't like Jews. I don't want to hear these stories. 
and you just sort of cover your ears. And then you have people like the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, like ISIS, uh, like uh, Hamas, like Hezbollah, who say the Holocaust didn't happen, and given half a chance, they would finish the job. In other words, it's a kind of tactic to insult the dead, to threaten the living, and at the same time, really try to confuse the general population or just put out enough white noise out there. When you have a, a state like Iran, which uses its media, its cultural outlets to pound away that the Holocaust didn't happen, they're convinced that makes a difference. Many of the Iranian people that I speak to say, oh, you mean the regime says the Holocaust didn't happen? That means it definitely did. Hmm. Nonetheless, you have that kind of, uh, of an impact. I, I do think, though, if we're talking about the United States and, and, and the West, um, is that there is anti-Semitism out there. Uh, there is some, you know, in terms of, uh, is this a race towards victimhood? Is important that the Jewish people be counted among the victims? We don't want to be victims anymore. We want to look forward and have a quality of life in the United States. We want to support the Jewish state. So it's not victimhood. So if you don't want the victimhood, what is it that you're trying to teach? And that, I think, is the point of departure, not only for young Jews, but for every visitor who comes to the museum. What we have to do is increase the number of films, the books. We have to, of course, find a way to memorialize the messaging of the survivors of the Shoah. You know, if there ever was a group of people that had the moral right to become terrorists and tear everything down, it was the people who saw that the world didn't care when their families and loved ones were gassed and burned to death and they barely survived. The fact that they embraced life, they made such a tremendous difference to the quality of life, not only in terms of the state of Israel, but in every Jewish community around the world and beyond. What an unbelievable and positive legacy. So um, it is a huge challenge. I think the most important thing is personalization, putting a human face on history, mm -hmm. and coming up with relevant messages and lessons to learn from that era. Absolutely. And if you have an opportunity to visit the Museum of Tolerance, I highly suggest you do a beautiful museum that is is, is such in a uh, really a tribute uh, to the victims and, and to really telling the story in a way that's meaningful. Um, let, me, let me add one other point uh, sure. that might, a point, historic point. You know, uh, back, I guess it was in the 80s, Saddam Hussein uh, gassed 5,000 of his citizens, 5,000 Kurds were put to death by Saddam. Most of the world leaders didn't say a word. Simon Wiesenthal spoke out, and what he told me then was, you know, when it comes to uh, the crime of genocide and mass murder, there are two types of people who are paying attention. The good people who want to learn the right lessons to make sure it never happens again, and evildoers like Saddam Hussein. And when they see that the world doesn't respond, that it's a, a silent apathy, etc., that just guarantees there'll be more and more of people like him who are going to go down that path. And tragically, Mr. Wiesenthal was, was right. So I think the other piece of the overall lessons and messaging from, from those lessons from the Shoah 
is that silence is not an option. You really do have to speak out. When you contextualize that for young people, when you challenge them to think about it some more, then the sacrifices and heroism, people like Mordechai and Alevich and Frank uh, and so many others become relevant. That's when we have an opportunity to start reaching young people, Jewish and non-Jewish. Uh, right. And, and that was actually my, my next question is that um, you have given tours right at, at the museum to people who either have denied the Holocaust or have shown, um, you know, to speak out against Jews, have shown to be anti-Semitic, etc. You know, um, I think there were ideas about Kyrie Irving, the NBA player um, who you know recently said some things that were unflattering to Jews and um there there are you know ideas thrown around about him taking a tour of the museum I mean, in your experience does that tour do, does this uh, you know raising awareness bringing people's attention to things giving them the facts does it help turn anti-semites occasionally uh, sometimes people don't want to be confused by the facts because they have an agenda and uh, i would say that one of the if you will, successes was someone like Nick Cannon, uh, who gave uh, a lot of airtime to someone who was just mouthing uh, Farrakhan's hatred uh, for the Jewish people and denial of our history and of our uh, our values. Um, and I think Nick Cannon, for me, was someone who I said, well, if you want to learn all about anti-Semitism, tune into his uh, podcast. And uh, within an hour or two, he had, you know, reached out. I told him, don't apologize to me. You have to apologize to the Jewish people. Mm. He opened up and that started uh, a relationship in which he eventually and pretty quickly, not just apologized, but, you know, went the extra mile, learned, uh, learned a lot more, exposed himself, uh, you know, to, to these issues. And I, I think where a lot of young people who, who are linked into social media, mm-hmm. where there's no filter, there's no historic context, there's no librarian, there's no teacher to say, you got wrong. Uh, that's the perfect kind of context and setting uh, for young people to be influenced with all kinds of conspiracy theories right. and, uh, and, and alternative, quote-unquote, alternative uh, truths. So... We have to try to reach those people. I think the the majority of our work has to be focused on the 95% of the population that doesn't really know very much, doesn't know why it should, generally apathetic, and don't wake up every morning with Jew on the brain. So occasionally we'll turn some of the anti-Semites by exposing them to the truth or to a great survivor. But the majority of our work has to be with the people we're just sitting on the sidelines and say, like, why is this relevant to me in any way, shape, or form? Right. And just to just to quantify a lot of what you're saying, uh, we're looking at hate crimes against Jews, especially in the last three years, being the number one targeted group in America, up 400 uh, percent. And when you look at the population of Jews across the world, particularly in America, against the 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 general population, this is a small, small ratio. I mean, um, you look at the fixation and that- right. We're about 2.4% of the population, maybe, and about 63% of all hate crimes, according to Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, has targeted our community. 
So right. we think about, obviously, we're concerned about why this is happening. There, there are numerous factors. First, this trend already started before COVID. And the focus uh, uh, turned to the places where, where there had large Jewish populations, like the uh, religious communities in Brooklyn, New York, Williamsburg, and Crown Heights, and Flatbush. Uh, you had similar situations in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And in Los Angeles, we had some horrific incidents as well, where the focus was an easy target, somebody who was obviously Jewish. Mm -hmm. We've been dealing with that problem in Europe for 15 years. Right. This is relatively new and obviously deeply disturbing phenomenon. It's one of the reasons we keep calling for a, a special um, a task force from the FBI so that we can figure out when is it a lone wolf? When is it one person who's gone off the deep end? When is it tied to a hate group? And when is it linked to a worldwide effort to spread the propaganda of groups like Hamas and Hezbollah? Right. right. And you add to that the left and the right, the far left, the far right, the media, um, members of Congress uh, who are hell bent on uh, smearing Israel's name and you know diminishing uh, Jews wherever they can. Recently, a UK um, um, member of the Labour Party also, uh, you know, coming out and saying Jews do not experience racism. They might be discomforted, and that's all. Um, but that brings me to the point of where people try to kind of. Um, differentiate between, you know, Jew hatred or anti-Semitism and then being anti-Zionist, meaning we might have issues with, with you know, the, the state of Israel, but we don't have issues with Jews. But do you allow for that differentiation? And why do you think that this has become such a phenomenon? Why the fixation? Well, for one thing, um, you know, the Jewish people, uh, when, they, when I start hearing, for example, uh, white privilege, I don't know. My grandparents came to the United States. I think between the four of them, maybe they had ten dollars. <laughs> so the, uh, you know, we don't fit into um, a narrative that's being pushed by uh, elements of the progressive uh, movement uh, because they're pushing an agenda that has to do with what color your skin is. Right. Well, if you walk down the street in Jerusalem. And you get every skin tone there is for Jews. We're not a race, we're a people. And color is, is not the, uh, the, the key factor. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who are promoting the idea of equity. Well, uh, you know, we've been taught the idea of equality. Um, and one of the key elements of our education at the Museum of Tolerance, what we're trying to push, we have been for all these decades, is critical thinking personal responsibility. The other issues are important. You know, there is discrimination in society. People do suffer because of their sexual orientation sometimes and because of the color of their skin. Those are problems in society, but um, the way to approach it is to deal with the problems and not to convert those problems into a, a new category of a victimhood and who gets to the front of the line and yeah. how do you divide people? I mean, obviously, everything that the Wiesenthal Center Museum stands for is to bring people together, but not by demanding everybody thinks the same way. So we don't fit into those boxes. Well, and on top of it, maybe once upon a time, you can be uh, an anti-Zionist without being an anti-Semite. Those days are long gone. 
the largest Jewish community in the world is in Israel. That number is growing. Uh, and, uh, you know, for anybody who's ever prayed in a Jewish prayer book, well, every other page, you have that desire that's been uh, prayed over for thousands of years of return to Zion. For us, it's not just the political um, uh, ap approach of, you know, supporting a particular state. It's also the, the core of our religion, our, our uh, original language, uh, and our values. So um, I think you'll find more and more, especially with uh, anti-Semites, uh, both in the far right and also in terms of Hamas and, uh, and other extremists within the Arab and Muslim world. They gave up that difference a long time ago. Uh, they now uh, target people they call Sabbath pigs, meaning religious Jews. And that kind of language, raw genocidal language, which used to be uh, only applied right here in the, you know, in the Middle East. Well, today everything's on social media. So five minutes after the lady, latest stabbing or shooting or running over of a Jew uh, in Israel is viral all over the world. There's no differentiating anymore between uh, uh, Jews and Zionists, although there are also Jews, unfortunately, who are anti-Semites who hate what we stand for and, you know, seek to sort of fit into a different narrative. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's their right in the United States to do so. Right. But not to confuse anything, you know, the vast overwhelming majority of Jews, uh, even if they've never been to Israel, even if they don't follow the daily politics, they know that Israel is a very important place for them. And there is one lesson that Jews do know about, including kids coming home, from Ivy League colleges having suffered discrimination and intimidation is the big difference between today and 80 years ago is today there is a Jewish homeland. And if you're having problems at the University of Chicago, you may want to try the Technion in Israel. It's probably a better school. Right. And as I always say, if anyone tells you they don't have a problem with Jews, but they have a problem with the government in Israel, ask them to name you three of the policies they don't agree with. And I, I bet you they won't even be. Well, if you need to uh, crash course in that, you just come to Israel and hop into any taxi cab. Don't worry. <laughs> the driver will give you 15 things they're unhappy with that day. This is a rock and roll uh, democracy, uh, sometimes a blood sport. You'd like it to be a little bit better mannered, uh, you know, but it, but it is what it is. Nonetheless, as we've seen both with, uh, the amazingly difficult 24 hours of uh, Memorial Day here. Right. Uh, then the trans, you know, transforming into the pride of being part of a, of a, of a Jewish state, a state that's now 10 million people. They say by 2045, there may be 24 million people in Israel, 20 million of them Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward for the next couple of to really begin uh, to build on what's flourished so far and, right. and to really um, fulfill the Jewish dream, uh, right. the Jewish destiny, which I think primarily is going to be driven uh, from this zip code right here in Jerusalem. Right. I mean, it's not going to be from, from Washington, D.C., from, from the looks of things. You know, you you pointed to a, a few things that are, are quite important in the context of our conversation because we're um, we started out the conversation talking about Gen Z 
and millennials, people who are under 40, not not knowing. And um, I, I would even take it to under 25 because, you know, we're looking at college campuses and social media uh, and what's what the dichotomy that, that I see over and over again is how there's such a push to, you know, to to support social justice causes. And, you know, what big, bitter, bigger or better social justice cause than to support, you know, Jews who are such a small minority, but yet that cross-sectionality that's promoted is to say, well, if you care about gays, then you should hate Jews. If you care about blacks, then you should hate Jews. If you marched for George Floyd, then you should hate Jews and be against Israel. And, you know, that just keeps going. And this is exactly, these are the talking points that are perpetuated. Uh, and also by, by funny that they claim the Jews own Hollywood, because you'd think Hollywood would do a better job at defending the Jews and defending Israel in their narratives. But uh, I know you also um, do a lot of media work, whether it's television, you know, doing these types of interviews, but also writing op-eds, putting these very important points on paper for people to read, or on the web, uh, more accurately these days. I mean, what role do you see media playing or not playing uh, in, in the course of this conversation? Um, you know, I just find that in the work that I do, which is usually getting the bad news early and often, that it's just cheaper to write op-eds than go to a shrink. <laughs> uh, um, it's a, it is, as okay. you know, Lisa, you're, you're one of the people who's right there on the cutting edge. The media is not interested to hear what we have to say. Uh, we're we're not in some ways we just again don't fit fit the orthodox um, narrative of the day and you have to work very very hard uh, to and then find the outlets that will give you the opportunity uh, to be heard this is you probably hear this from uh, many people many causes many politicians etc but especially for the Jewish community there is the beginning of a wake-up, uh, let's say, at the LA Times about anti-Semitism. Well, if two Jews in consecutive days are shot mm -hmm. as they walk out of a West, a West Side synagogues, uh, the LA Times put a phenomenal writer on it, and he wrote a, a spectacular piece. Right. But insofar as a sensitivity, an identification with the struggles of the Jewish community, let's say in Los Angeles. I don't find a lot of that at the LA Times. They've been around 45 years. And it hurts not having that kind of an affinity and that kind of relationship. It doesn't mean that you give it a free pass when things go wrong. But uh, right in, in LA, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, go right through the top uh, traditional media, it's a real struggle. The huge difference has come, obviously, that we have now the opportunity to use internet technology uh, to speak you know, to uh, audiences uh, literally all over the world. But I also think that, and I, I'm involved uh, in, in volunteering with a, a group called Connect Israel, which uh, takes tw 20 and 30 something successful American Jewish business people, hooks them up with their opposite numbers in Israel, and then we pick an Arab country to go to and, um, and spend some time together. I think what many young people, young Jews who maybe just didn't have the education are beginning to experience. I'll give two examples. 
you know, I tell this to everyone, when, when you go to Dubai and you have a meeting or you have a call and with a potential business person and they say, okay, why don't we get together for that meeting on Saturday morning at about 11 o'clock? Mm. I just tell them, Israelis and Americans, don't take the meeting at 11. Just say, look, you know, it's Shabbat, it's the Jewish Sabbath. Let's meet on Sunday. Now, why do I suggest that? Here's why. 450,000 Israelis have already visited the United Arab Emirates. There's so much curiosity to, you know, to break through that psychological and historic barrier. I said, don't you think the people on the other end have the same curiosity? So they'd be, they'll understand why you're postponing, but then their first question is going to be, well, tell me about Shabbat. What does it mean to you? Mm -hmm. Or you know, if you want to only eat fish, well, why don't you? And if you don't have answers to those questions, maybe a good time to start then. I think the other part of it is many young Jews are coming home at the end of the school year or sometimes, you know, calling home to, to mom or dad, paying a fortune for these education and, and just pouring out their hearts. They're intimidated. They're, they're uh, you know, shunted aside. They're purged to places like University of Southern California. And for many of them, it's their first experience as Jews. And I've always felt this from a very young age. We should never let the anti-Semites define who Mm -hmm. we are. So part of the challenge here for young people and slightly older people, for whatever reason, either didn't take the opportunity, didn't have the exposure, here is a constant of Jewish history. To the anti-Semite, they don't care what your level of Jewishness is. They're going to hate you anyway. My view is build out your Jewishness based on the very rich traditions that you have access to. You'll be happier, your kids will be happier, and you'll be better positioned to defend the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've done such a tremendous job at defending the Jewish people. And I, unfortunately, we're, we're coming up against our, our last question. But you're such a pro. You, you pretty much segued me right there. Um, you know, if we're looking at, at young people and really um, doing what we can with the platforms that we can. You really are at the helm of, of you know, a, an institution, a museum, a platform. You, you're, you're a branded personality to really pass the baton, pass the torch, really you know, do what you can to, to really change the course of the next generation. Taking a look around, I mean, you've spoken at the UN, you know the challenges there. I mean, it's an uphill battle. Uh, you look at the media and, and, and how we battle that machine every single day. You look at Hollywood, we live right here in Los Angeles and we see what's around us. You look at the world, I mean, you've met with leaders from Jordan and Indonesia and Sudan and and Egypt, and the list goes on, you know all the challenges that are out there, but you're also looking at these polls and these numbers, and you see the crises that face uh, Jews and and the state of Israel. Going forward, will the Simon Wiesenthal Center and yourself and Rabbi Heyer and everybody else who's part of this, will you have to, and how would you, change your approach or evolve in a way to meet these new challenges? Well, um, I would just say two things. Jewish education, however you define it, 
It can uh, needs to be bolstered, needs to be pushed. Every Jew should uh, visit Israel at least once to understand what it is that so many people want to take away from us. But the other piece of this, and I say this as a religious Jew, but as someone who lives in the diaspora, is that we have an obligation to reach out to our neighbors, not during the time of crisis, but just every day, like say, you know, we want to have full funding for police, not just for West LA, for everybody in Los Angeles. There are poor that need to be taken care of. There are relationships that need to be built out. We can't assume that our neighbors are going to stand up for us when we have a crisis if they don't know who we are. So we live in a democracy. It's a sin not to be involved in a democracy. So if we sit back and close our ears and eyes to others and only scream out when we feel we're under attack, we're doomed because we're a small minority. But I think what we what Judaism, the Jewish people stands for, uh, in terms also of, of the, um, the greater uh, uh, universal concepts, we have a lot to share. We have a lot to give. And I can report to you from all over the world, and I've been all over the world, the operative term for the people I meet nine out of 10 times isn't hatred, it's curiosity. They want to know, first and foremost, what makes you tick? Why does a Jew in Toronto care about a Jew in Aviv? That's a good place to start. If you can't answer that question, maybe it's time to start looking. So for the in, internal part of our community is that Jews have to care for each other. I mean, we're family, which means you don't always like your siblings, but they are your brothers and sisters. You have to take that attitude, you know, cut a little slack uh, for our fellow uh, Jews and take pride in the fact that here we are. Thousands of years later, all these other empires are gone. And there we are, those pesky Jews <laughs> building up the Holy Land and making a difference all over the world. So uh, this isn't a time to go into a ghetto. This is a time to know who you are, learn who you are. Now with social media and the Internet, you can pretty much educate yourself. Make sure you visit Israel and... Um, Make sure you care for the people down the block who are not of the Jewish faith as well. Well, actually, before I let you go, speaking of people down the block or across the oceans, um, I will be accepting an award in two weeks from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, who has decided um, very beautifully to honor the women of Iran who have been fighting a revolution for the past seven months. And I know that the Simon Wiesenthal Center has honored the women of Iran. You did a an, an event for International Women's Day that I, I had the uh, privilege to be a part of. And now I will humbly accept the award on behalf of all Iranian women. It comes at such a um, uh, auspicious time as the uh, exiled Prince of Iran, Reza Pahlavi, just completed yes. a very well-rounded trip uh, in Israel. I think you guys overlapped on your trips there. Um, you speak a bit about, you know, the Simon Thal, uh, the Simon Wiesenthal Centers, um, really uh, their attention to the women of Iran and their connection uh, to really bridging these two communities together. Right. So, the, first of all, Lisa, you're the perfect person to be the ambassador for uh, the women we don't know yet and uh, to send them a signal that we care, uh, not only for the, the small uh, remaining number of Jews in Iran, 
But for the people of Iran, this is a, a critical time. And unfortunately, many political leaders, including in the United States, uh, have deflected uh, or rejected their responsibility to stand with uh, the amazingly courageous uh, uh, women. They bring the kids into the world. They know what they, what they have right now isn't acceptable. What courage. And at least, you know, for the extent that we can, and as you know, you'll have a lot of captains, a lot of leaders of the entertainment industry will be there that night. We want to educate them the people in that audience can make a difference in a lot of different ways. And that's one of the reasons uh, we selected it. I also traveled extensively in the Gulf region. You know, when you have lunch 20 kilometers away from Iran, <laughs> it does, you know, get gain your attention. So we're at a tipping point historically. Uh, we have to do what we can uh, to, to promote the goals of the people of Iran before, God forbid, Israel is forced, and maybe UAE and others are forced to make existential decisions mm -hmm. that could land up ruining that, that blessed land, you know, for 100 years. So yeah. we're right there, and we're just blessed that the women of Iran, whatever their religion is, have had the courage to stand up. We owe it to them, mm -hmm. and that's why we're doing it. Well, thank you very much. And I know that you were right there, front and center for the Abraham Accords. I think I saw you at the White House on that day. Uh, I hope that uh, you will be there because you absolutely did merit the honor to be a part of the Cyrus Accords, which hopefully will one day connect the people of Iran and the people of Israel, just like the meaningful relationships that you describe between the people of the UAE and Israel. Hopefully one day soon, we will see this manifest between the people of Iran and the people of Israel as well. And I thank you, Rabbi for standing up for so many wonderful causes, for being such an ambassador, for being such a, a catalyst uh, and doing such wonderful world, work around the world. And uh, I wish you all the best. I encourage all of you at home to look up the Simon Wiesenthal Center, all of their uh, events, their exhibits, go to the museum, check it out. Tell people you know about this and follow Rabbi Cooper online. He, he does some wonderful writing, as he said, therapy, his rants are wonderful, and he, he says it like it is. Thank you, Rabbi, for joining us. For those of you at home who's like, who'd like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daftari. And to subscribe for our daily top 10 email, go to foreigndesknews.com. See you all next week.